not easy reading. And not very polished. We can publish it. Who's the guy after your own heart? Who's the my last guy in the middle here in the front row? It's a good-looking pair of boots. I can get back into the club or not. Good morning. Although this panel is entitled "Are We Overlawyering International Affairs?" I think the better way to describe it is "What is the role of lawyers?" in making legal policy. And as you've heard from several of the panel discussions at this convention, the global war on terror has raised not only serious and difficult legal questions, but has raised serious and difficult legal policy issues, such as whether terrorism should be addressed as a matter of criminal law as a, or as a matter of the laws of war, or whether it presents a new paradigm that must be addressed by a new set of rules. And what should those rules be? This panel will discuss the role of lawyers, particularly government lawyers, in addressing questions of legal policy. It will discuss fundamental questions such as, should lawyers decide legal policy, or is that best left to the policymakers? Should lawyers give advice as to legal policy, or should they stick to providing answers as to what the law is? How should lawyers respond to what a policymaker thinks is a legal question, but is really a question of legal policy? If lawyers find the law vague or lacking, should they fill in the gaps, advising as to what the law should be? Was Secretary of State Rice right when she warned the American Society of International Law that lawyers should not stretch laws, such as the Geneva Conventions, to apply to circumstances they were not designed for? Did the authors of the Justice Department opinions on interrogation techniques stretch in the other direction when they held that laws did not restrict the president's authority? Should lawyers indicate the quality of their response to a question? For example, should they say how a court would decide or how a court should decide? Or is it just enough to say that this is a reasonable answer and others may differ? What should a government lawyer do after losing an intra-government policy argument on a legal issue? Is the answer different if the argument was over a legal policy issue? We have a distinguished panel to discuss these issues. Our first uh, speaker will be Phil Zellico. Um, Phil is uh, currently the counselor of the State Department. This is not a legal position, but is a very serious policy position from which he advises the Secretary of State on a wide range of issues. He was the staff director of the 9-11 Commission, and in the past he has uh, been a trial and appellate lawyer. He has been a foreign service officer, and he has served on the NSC staff. Prior to becoming counselor, he was the White Burkett Miller Professor of History and director of the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. He will provide the insight of a policymaker on the role of lawyers in making legal policy. John Yu will follow Phil. John needs no introduction to this group. Uh, his latest book, uh, War by Other Means, has just been released, and John will be signing copies of this this afternoon. 
I'll make a little plug for the book. Um, whether you agree with John, it's, it's a great, uh, you can just look at the table of contents, war, the Geneva Conventions, assassination, the Patriot Act, the NSA and wiretapping, Guantanamo Bay, interrogation, military commissions. It sounds almost like the agenda for this convention. Uh, John is currently professor at the at, uh, University of California at Berkeley Law School. Uh, from 2001 to 2003, he served as a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel. He played a uh, prominent role in the formulation of the legal opinions addressing many of the key issues that have arisen in the war on terror. Uh, John will be followed by Admiral uh, Dean uh, John Hudson. John is the president and dean of the Franklin Pierce Law Center in New Hampshire. Uh, in, uh, he is a career uh, naval officer and, and rose in, in in 1997, uh, he became the Judge Advocate General of the Navy. Dean Hudson can, I believe, present the views of the career, particularly the uniformed uh, government lawyer. Our final speaker will be Philip Bobbitt, uh, who is the holder of the A.W. Walker Centennial Chair at the University of Texas Law School in Austin. Philip has served in the government in both policy and legal positions. He was an in the White House Counsel's Office in the Carter Administration. He served on the Senate Iran-Contra Committee, and he has uh, been Senior Director for Intelligence, Senior Director for Critical Infrastructure, and Senior Director for Strategic Planning at the, Na at the National Security Council during the Clinton Administration. I had the good fortune of inheriting this lifelong Democrat as my... Um, Counselor for International Law when I served as a legal advisor in the uh, George H.W. Bush uh, administration. Um, so, uh, Phil, why don't you start things off? Thanks, Ed. I'm happy to have the opportunity to address this group today. Can all of you hear me in the back? Can you hear me now? I won't rely so much on the mic. Basically, I want to cover three major points. First, the paradigm of armed conflict that we're in now from a legal perspective. Second, the challenge of making legal policy. And third, the way in which uh, we are adjusting our understanding of legal policy in, the, in combating terrorism today. Okay, first. The paradigm of armed conflict as it applies to the conduct of the war on terror. What I said in my remarks, which some of you may have seen uh, to an ABA committee earlier this year, was that we had adopted a criminal justice approach to combating terrorism in the period before 9-11. Uh, we indicted Osama bin Laden in 1998 and so on. Um, the criminal justice approach to fighting al-Qaeda was not effective. And therefore, we shifted after 9-11 to an approach of conducting armed conflict. For a variety of reasons, I think that that's an absolutely fundamental and necessary shift in the basic approach. The paradigm of criminal justice is not adequate, for a variety of reasons, to deal with a large transnational phenomenon like al-Qaeda. 
And armed conflict in this case, or war, is not simply used as a metaphorical term. It's real. It's a real war in Afghanistan. It's a real war in Iraq. Uh, the United States engages in actions under the law of armed conflict in other parts of the world that are effectively ungoverned. And the United States is a partner in local government's efforts waging war against terrorism, say, in places like northern Pakistan. So we have a law of armed conflict paradigm that I think is a better way to take on the kind of problem and challenge we're meeting. The law of armed conflict is supplemented by criminal justice rules where people are captured under the legal regimes of different states, like inside the United States, for example, dealing perhaps with an American citizen. But the law of armed conflict has to be an essential part of the legal approach you bring to the war on terror. Uh, that's an argument I made at greater length in my earlier remarks, and I just don't want to spend a lot of time going through it now. I frankly think that it will be very hard for any administration, Democratic or Republican, that succeeds the Bush administration, to say we're going to discard the law of armed conflict approach altogether, and we're just going to go back to criminal justice and Article Three courts and indictments in the Southern District of New York. I think it will be hard to go back there. So I think historically, as people look back on this period, whatever the controversies, they will see a real important break having occurred between that pre-9-11 paradigm of criminal justice plus, plus the occasional cruise missile, and law of armed conflict plus, which is the uh, paradigm we're in now. Okay. But the next point under that is if you want to adopt that new paradigm and make it durable and sustainable, you then have to interpret the law of armed conflict and manage the law of armed conflict and make policy decisions in a way that allow that paradigm to be sustainable and effective. For instance, if you interpret the law, if you ask other countries in the world to accept that you're operating under the law of war, it helps if you're interpreting the law of war in a way those other countries can understand and accept. If you choose to interpret the law of war in a ways that they can't live with, then they can't live with your law of war approach, and then it's very difficult to get them out of the criminal justice paradigm in which anyway they're going to feel more comfortable. Then you can't build an international consensus around your new approach, and that has all kinds of complications in the way you do business around the world. And here I want to note that this is not just a matter of, oh, we have to defer to world opinion. I know that kind of deferring to world opinion is almost like a red flag, especially to some conservatives. This is not a matter of winning an opinion poll in the world. It turns out that getting the cooperation of other countries is actually quite important to the effectiveness of the war on terror. If you want countries to cooperate with you in the international rendition of terrorist suspects, then certain things need to be available. If you want them to make their airspace available for flights of your government aircraft, then certain things need to be true. If you want their police and their soldiers to be helping you in a variety of different ways, their governments have to be able to live with what you're doing. And if the circle of cooperating governments gets narrower and narrower, the reach and effectiveness of our ability to conduct a global war shrinks accordingly. So I believe it's a legitimate goal to try to build an international coalition that shares our basic principles. And I believe that our goal, therefore, should be to try to persuade our international partners to make the big jump that we made. 
and to join us in understanding that the law of armed conflict has to be an essential part of our approach to conducting the war on terror. Now, the argument I've just made to you is fundamentally a policy argument, not a legal argument. I have not said to you, for example, that we are bound as a matter of law to apply a particular interpretation of the Geneva Convention or Common Article 3. I have said that it is prudential as a matter of policy to apply legal principles that other countries can understand and accept, whether or not you believe you are bound to make that choice. In fact, this was the re one reason why the 9-11 Commission in its report recommended that as a matter of policy, the U.S. government should choose to apply Common Article 3 as a floor in its behavior without engaging the issue of whether we were bound to accept that principle, a position which effectively has now been decided for the administration and for the United States by the Supreme Court. Let me turn to my second point then, which is legal policy. Legal policy. I wonder if I took a poll here and asked you, how many of you believe that judges should make public policy from the bench? <laughs> my guess is this is a proposition that would not carry a lot of weight in this room. This is my view, too. In general, I'm reluctant to have judges make policy, public policy from the bench. Well, why is that? Well, because they're not trained to do that. They're not democratically empowered to do that. They, uh, they so basically you find them using legal reasoning in ways that often seem forced because you sense that they're trying to achieve a public policy objective, yet they're not really engaging in the kind of full-bore policy analysis that really should accompany such momentous decisions. <coughs> My view t is actually that lawyers also should not make public policy in the executive branch as a matter of interpreting the law. That if you interpret the law in ways that are then designed to make public policy, you engage in some of the same problematical behavior. Unless the lawyers are explicitly acting as policymakers, using the criteria policymakers use, the approach policymakers should use, and considering the full range of political and international and prudential considerations that a policymaker would employ, and are trained by uh, formal training or by experience to employ them. Right. Now, let me then make the point here that what do we mean in the context of the war on terror? What are we talking about? For example, if you look at the way American lawyers are trained, or the way I was trained, I've made the point in my remarks that we're not basically trained in policing and public order. A course in criminal procedure even advanced criminal procedure and mastery of Fourth Amendment law is not the same as a course in policing or how to maintain public order in developing societies. Nor is it a course in counterterrorism and how to practice effective counterterrorism and how intelligence collection works in the counterterrorism or counterinsurgency world. Nor, is, nor, are lawyers, nor do lawyers necessarily receive as very much formal training in the kind of political analysis or international policy issues that might be employed in this policy realm of legal policy in the twilight war in which we are now engaged. Now, the typical pattern in which these issues are brought to attention in the executive branch, and by the way, this is not a partisan comment. 
in any way. This was true in the Clinton administration. It's true in the Bush administration to some degree. And I'm just simply saying it's a matter of habit is what happens is for one reason or another, either because uh, someone asked for it or because it came from below, an agency will develop a proposal about something they want to do. Let's suppose that that proposal also involves highly sensitive intelligence issues, as in, for instance, the context of covert action. That proposal then usually goes to an interagency lawyers group, and the key interagency meetings tend to be dominated by the lawyers, who are mostly arguing about whether or not we, should, we can do this thing. And then there are intense debates on how to describe the appropriate authorities in which the primary drivers of the process are the lawyers, and then the, uh, the document is arrived at, and then the policymakers come back into it, usually in a big way at the level of cabinet principles. But at that point, the cake is pretty well baked. I would argue this is not an ideal way in which to make momentous decisions about legal policy in the war on terror. So, for instance, John Yoo, I think, was an important policymaker with respect to policies concerning the conduct of the war on terror. It's hard to read his book and not come away with that impression. And indeed, many of the major characters in the book are the other lawyers who worked with John in fashioning these policies. And I'm at, without taking any side at all on whether or not John made the right decisions or the wrong decisions, I simply want you to step back and notice the way the policies are being made and who, is, who are the critical participants at the sub-cabinet level in making them. There are exceptions to this, some of the internal DOD procedures and so on. But I think that what I'm describing it occurred commonly enough. What are then are the, some of the kinds of issues that would surface when you bring full policy analysis to bear as opposed to simply the question of what can I do versus what I can't do? In other words, I'm not going to engage the issues at all of presidential power or the commander-in-chief's authority in which let's us, we'll just assume for the sake of argument that everything that John argued in his book on those matters is correct. John has many arguments about these issues with others. I'm not going to engage in those arguments. And indeed, you want your lawyers to come in and tell you whether or not you're allowed to do the things you want to do or can't do them. But whether you can do something is not the same thing as whether you should do something. And occasionally, these two concepts can get blurred. Issues, for example, like effectiveness. And, uh, um, and basically, what you're involved in often is a balance of effectiveness against uh, moral issues. And moral issues are not, a, not the same as legal issues, in case I need to stress that point. So for instance, when you get into issues of effectiveness in detention and interrogation procedures, you can look at the experience of the French in Algeria. John, for instance, in his book cites the effectiveness of French techniques, say, in the Battle of Algiers in 1957. But those same techniques then caused an enormous counter-reaction in France that helped shorten France's ability to conduct the war, not for legal reasons, but for larger political reasons. I wrote two case studies on the conduct of policing in Northern Ireland about 15 years ago spending time in Belfast and spending a lot of time. That's been a tortuous process of trial and error in British policing and in interrogation methods, not just a question of effectiveness, but the sustainability of certain procedures over time. And they're learning through this painful process of what you can do that's both politically and internationally sustainable and also um, effective as well. There's a similar story for Israel and for the United States. 
we have a lot of history in these matters, going back to World War II and other episodes in the interrogation procedures we've worked out, much of which uh, had not been thoroughly analyzed at the time a lot of the decisions were made, understandably under great stress. Even today, we have almost a laboratory case of the way we handle terrorists outside of Iraq and the way we handle terrorists who are just as dangerous inside of Iraq under the law of armed conflict. Another issue is sustainability. Sustainability is both domestic and international. The most effective policies will be those that will survive from one administration to the next, regardless of party affiliation, regardless of who is in control of Congress, so that the people who are carrying out your policies don't feel that they're going to be whipsawed back and forth, and we don't have the pendulum swings that we experienced in the church committee period and after. And so that's where I wish to conclude, is uh, late this summer, the President made a series of announcements that really moved us into a different phase, legally, in the way we are conducting the war on terror. He did so, and he was already moving to do so before the Supreme Court decision, and on a comprehensive basis, building the basis, despite the controversy you read about the Military Commissions Act, for a sustainable partnership working with the Congress and working with foreign countries, what he called a common foundation with them using the military commissions for the major war criminals who actually helped carry out the 9-11 attacks, accepting the risk that the way those people were treated will therefore come out, but it's more important to bring them to justice. With a relatively limited role for some of the secret CIA procedures, but nonetheless fencing off the things we have to be able to do in that realm that are invaluable. And finally, accepting that we need a durable legal framework in which to provide necessary policy guidance for the conduct of this conflict and be able to obtain broad, durable support for the way we conduct it. I think, in other words, that the policies, despite the controversies you may read about at the moment, are moving in a reasonably healthy way and are moving forward in a more sustainable way and I think will allow us to sustain the fundamental paradigm shift that occurred after 9-11. I'd like uh, to thank the Federal Society for inviting me to speak uh, twice in two days. Um, and um, in particular, I'd like to uh, say I'm not plugging my book again. I'm going to plug Phil's book and Phil's book. <laughs> um, Phil's book, he has a great book on the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I read a long time ago about a lot of things he describes about how the interagency process is an important factor in how we make policy. And that, in fact, sometimes how interagency processes take over uh, and decide things that the, uh, exact, the, lead, the elected leaders of the government don't actually intend or want to happen. I also learned a lot from Phil Bobbitt's book, which I highly recommend, The Shield of Achilles, which is sort of a bigger picture analysis of the changes in the world and the place of the United States in that world and how we, in some ways, have to confront the dangers of proliferation of WMD and terrorism. <laughs> and in both of those books, I've learned quite a bit about, learned from, in thinking about these issues. First, let me just uh, say as a matter of the question of the title of the panel, has there been uh, over-lawyerization or change in the amount of lawyering in the way we conduct foreign affairs? I think it's undeniable that there is. And uh, you can look at all kinds of things about us in the war on terrorism and some of the wars before to look at that. I think really the question to ask is whether it's a good thing or not. 
But if you look at accounts of the wars in Kosovo and Afghanistan, you read accounts of our military leaders, our civilian leaders, going up even to the President of the United States, choosing bombing targets with lawyers sitting right next to them, evaluating on the fly on an ad hoc basis whether selection of that target would be legal or illegal under international law. In fact, there's a well-known story about a convoy that was leaving Kandahar during the Afghanistan war where uh, commanders thought about attacking it because it was thought to have a large number of Taliban leaders in the convoy, but because there were, their families were in the convoy as well, apparently a, uh, a lawyer, a military lawyer in the command center vetoed the strike. I'm not, I can't tell whether that was a good decision or a bad decision on the facts, but it gives you a sense of how powerful lawyers have become in the fighting of war. It's hard to imagine this happening in the other major conflicts that we've waged, such as World War II or the Civil War. You don't see any accounts of lawyers playing that significant a role in day-to-day operations uh, of the military. <clears throat> it also takes place at much broader policy levels. And here I, I do want to reinforce what Philip just said, that it is important to understand that there is a line between law and policy. And my sense from working in the government is that actually lawyers tended to confuse that line and thought that a lot of what most people would think is policy was actually governed by law. And that one of the jobs, I think, of the Justice Department, <clears throat> excuse me, oddly enough, was to keep trying to stress that, no, in fact, the law doesn't decide these questions, that it really is a more difficult decision for policymakers to make. And I quite agree with Philip on this point, that as lawyers, we may not be the most competent people to make those policy decisions because we are not trained and how to make decisions about effectiveness of different procedures, effect on our ability to cooperate with other countries, effect on support for the United States and other areas. And those are all very important things that people are trained to do in public policy schools, through experience, uh, in the bureaucracies. I don't think those are things that lawyers are particularly better able to decide than others. So let me take, for example, the Geneva Convention uh, debate, which you've all heard about. I think Even to say, as I thought, and I think the administration thought, that the Geneva Conventions did not cover the war with al-Qaeda, that doesn't tell you as a policy matter whether we ought to do so at all anyway. And, of course, there are important reasons you could argue for, as Secretary Powell did at the time, in favor of that. There are also reasons against it. Um, But what I found there was that in the making of that um, decision, in, and uh, Philip mentioned this interagency process of lawyers, and when he said that, I, I thought I was going to have post-traumatic stress syndrome, because I thought one thing I'd never have to hear again after I left the government was another interagency process. But let me relive it for you and show you how painful, in fact, it can be. So in this interagency process, you have lawyers who will say things like, we should, not, we should give people Geneva Convention protections. And the reason why is because we're worried about how the Geneva Conventions will be honored in future conflicts against the United States, against a war, against another nation state. I, I think that's a perfectly valid concern, but to me, that strikes me as a policy consideration, right? Whether our conduct in this war with this kind of enemy who we just felt was not covered by Geneva because of the nature of their organization ought to be taken into account when we think about whether to do this war now, whether the future and whether our concerns about future compliance with Geneva by other nation states should influence how we decide now. I don't think that's a question about whether the Geneva Conventions and their text and history really cover the war on terrorism, but it's a good argument about the policy considerations about to 
follow it or not. And what I found in the debates in the interagency process is that lawyers in favor of following the Geneva Conventions in regards to al-Qaeda would make such arguments as if they were legal arguments about how those conventions ought to be interpreted rather than policy arguments about what to do as a matter once you know what the law was. <clears throat> the other thing I'll say about uh, this question is that another, we're all trained, I think, in law school to understand that law, the law we have today and the law we're making in the future is subject to policy, that the law, in a way, is expression of policy, right? One thing that uh, the change in legal education, legal scholarship over the last 30 and 40 years has been designed to do is to show more how often how legal rules are actually policy choices. And so even in the context of saying what the law is, we all understand that I found uh, in the government that there was a curious inability to understand international law in that way. That in some respects, the people we train uh, to work on international law issues uh, to think about international law, bring this very um, oddly formalist perspective to it, where it's thought that international law is very clear, that can be applied with great clarity, that it doesn't embody policy choices, and that it ought to be obeyed in all circumstances without regard to thinking about how to change it. Whereas uh, those of us who are common law lawyers, which we most people in the room understand, that the common law is an evolutionary system and that you can change it through time over practice. And there's an important component of that in international law. But in these, law, in these war and terrorism decisions, we'd have these arguments where people thought it was quite clear what international law was, what it required, and how it applied to something which it seems to me a common law lawyer would typically think of as, a, here's a new situation, war on terrorism, and what we ought to be thinking about is how to apply and adapt older rules drafted for a different situation to this new circumstance. Well, the last thing I'd like to address is just, I think, also the problems that are inherent in thinking of international law as the same kind of law that we have domestically. And I think that was a third thing that really struck me in these interagency processes, is there are people who come to the government who are arguing these debates who firmly believe that international law is not just as secure and firm as uh, domestic law, but that, in fact, it is federal law. And there were people who would say, it is, if, if we think this is international law, the commander-in-chief and the president is constitutionally bound to enforce it as if it were on a par with a statute or a treaty. I thought, I thought that was just purely striking. It was really striking to me how much of that view, which I've always thought of as a fairly um, aggressive view that's been promoted in the academy, had really seeped into the teaching of international law in our, um, in our government. I just, think that, I just don't think there's much <clears throat> historical or textual basis for that proposition, that there's no mention of international laws being part of federal law in the Constitution itself, aside when Congress chooses to make it an offense, a criminal offense. And we have historical examples where, for example, people like President Washington tried to prosecute people for violating his declaration of proclamation of neutrality in the absence of a congressional statute, and eventually the courts refused to go along. But one thing about that uh, that I've often thought was a problem is that it fails to treat or think of how international law really is, I think this does sort of tie in with what Philip just said, really is a tool not just, it really is a tool not just of the law, but a tool of international politics. And that taking some of these positions really does advance a certain kind of foreign policy or not. The United States used to do it when we were a weaker country and Great Britain was a stronger country. The United States often used to promote a view of international law that sought to constrain 
British interests. And I think if you look at today, that's exactly what's going on in the reverse. I think weaker countries, particularly in Europe, are using international law to try to constrain policy options that the United States should or want to have in fighting the war on terrorism. And, it, you know, if France wants to play a bigger role in international affairs and it doesn't want to uh, invest the resources into military and diplomatic uh, resources that should, then international law is a convenient way to try to constrain a larger power in the world, which this, at this time in, the, in world history happens to be us. And what we have to do is decide whether we're going to uh, decide on policies that might be effective, that might be inconsistent with the way other countries view international law, and balance it against what the effects might be, which I think Philip uh, really described quite well about harming international cooperation between the United States and other countries in fighting in the war on terrorism. But I do think, and let me close here, is that you know, the United States' views, it seems to me, are not uh, are often downplayed. I think we are a country that is providing uh, a public good of security um, in the world, international stability, and our views, I think, on international law ought to be taken into account more seriously and heavily, particularly in the laws of war and wartime, than a lot of other countries which just don't fight wars and aren't responsible for conducting military and intelligence operations designed to protect the West. Thank you. Good morning. I, too, want to thank the Federalist Society. Can you hear me? Uh, for inviting me here. It's a, it's a real honor. Um, I guess I'm a little embarrassed to uh, admit to you that I have not actually written any books. Um, <laughs> I, I have read a number over the years. Um, <laughs> none of those that have been touted so far, I have to admit, but uh, 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 it's an honor to be with this, uh, this distinguished uh, group whose careers I've watched uh, over the years. Um, in answer to the question, are we over-lawyering, I would uh, agree with, uh, with John and, uh, and give a resounding yes. But uh, also, I guess, agreeing with John, I'm not sure that that really answers the question. I think that we in the United States over-lawyer an awful lot. Uh, this is part of it, to be sure, but, but there are lots of things that we over-lawyer. And I think that the, other, the flip side of over-lawyering, it, the other way of looking at it, is that we often hide behind law and lawyers. We let the law and the lawyers uh, do the dirty work for us. And one of the things that I've discovered, I believe, after being a lawyer for 35 years or so, is that uh, it turns out that the law itself is less important than I thought it was, but that the lawyers are more important than I thought they were, uh, because clever lawyers, perhaps too clever by half, can get around the laws. And so I, I think that, it, that the lawyers become, or have become, increasingly important, but that creates potentially the problem of, uh, of over-lawyering. My job here this morning is, uh, is sort of unique and narrow to talk about the military and military lawyers because they have been thrust into the forefront uh, recently. And uh, they've become of, of great interest to people, <clears throat> and I think they have acquitted themselves uh, quite nicely. In that context, let me talk for a moment sort of at, at 
at 40,000 feet to, to talk about the law of war, which, and, and I, I should credit Colonel uh, Bill Eckhart at, at the Army War College for what I'm about to say for the next two or three minutes, or uh, because I've, I've, I've grievously stolen a lot of his ideas. Uh, I view the law of war as sort of a continuum, with law at one end and, and war at the other end, and there's a great deal of tension in that continuum of the law of, of war. Uh, the law values the system, the means. War glorifies the end, uh, the results of that. Uh, the, armed force, uh, the armed forces fear uh, that they're going to lose necessary means by which to achieve the end. The lawyers worry about loss of jurisdiction, creating yet another tension. Uh, the law restricts power. War uses power. Uh, the law tries to limit disorder and violence. Uh, war thrives on disorder and violence. Um, there are some great similarities, though, too. Both are vital to the success uh, and security of the country. Uh, and to some extent, one is a means to the end, I think, in the sense that <clears throat> if you look at the military mission, remember there are lawyers, people involved with this, are trying to facilitate it and make it work. If you look at the military mission, it is to fight and win the nation's wars. But all the military can do, and we need to keep this in mind in the present situation, all the military can do is provide the time and space necessary for the real solutions to take place. The military is not the solution in and of itself. And uh, the real solutions are legal, economic, cultural, social, <clears throat> religious, and legal. So that the lawyers involved in, in the, the war fighting aspect, providing the time and space necessary, then become part of the solution in the sense of providing the, the law of war. The military and the lawyers in the military aren't really very good, honestly, at, uh, at peacekeeping. They can do it at, at the point of a bayonet, but when you sheathe the bayonet, uh, all hell can break loose again. And they are particularly unsuited for nation building. That's somebody else's responsibility. The JAGs understand and respect the chain of command uh, and, and the mission of uh, the military. They also are very good generally, at protecting their bosses, the superiors, from making mistakes and protecting them oftentimes from themselves. But it's, it's absolutely necessary for military lawyers to understand that the four-star sitting across the table from them, the warfighting sink, or the presidential appointee sitting across the table from them are not their client. Their client is the United States of America. <clears throat> it's not the individual. And it's very easy for lawyers in the government and in the military, particularly in the military where, where the chain of command and loyalty are so vitally important and valued 
It's very easy. Have you heard me up to now? Because I can. S- I haven't actually written a book, but I. When I was a young, boy, that's odd now. When I was a young lawyer uh, in, the, in the Navy, we spent, and this was during Vietnam, and we were, we were all essentially avoiding the draft and, and, and uh, becoming lawyers because it seemed cleaner. Um, <laughs> we spent a lot of time debating whether we were lawyers first or were we naval officers first. What was our primary responsibility? To whom did our allegiance lie? To what profession did we owe our fealty? And the reality was that it was a red herring. Nobody asked the pilots whether they were pilots first or were they, uh, were they naval officers first. Nobody asked the submariners where their loyalty was. And it's the same thing for the, for the JAGs, for the judge advocates. The, the, the United States Armed Forces asks, asks them, demands of them, that they be the very best lawyers they can possibly be. That's all that they have to do, is be the best lawyers that they can possibly be. And I think, I say with some pride, that we've seen that uh, in the last few years. We've seen it with the lawyers that have been defending uh, people at military commissions. People come to me and say, gee, John, are you surprised? that uh, they've been so vigorous. Like, we kind of expected the lawyers in uniform to just lay over and, and play dead uh, because <clears throat> defending alleged terrorists wasn't the thing to do. Uh, and no, the answer is no. I wasn't surprised at all. I, in fact, I, uh, I expected it. I testified at the Senate Armed Services Committee <clears throat> a, a few months ago uh, with regard to military commissions and sat next to all the TJAGs, the Judge Advocates General of, of the various services. And they testified absolutely honestly and forthrightly about where they thought the, uh, the military, the administration had made mistakes and where they thought, uh, what they thought the way ahead was. And I thought showed a great deal of, of courage uh, in doing that. Uh, but again, I, I wasn't surprised from it. I think it's important for all lawyers, and particularly lawyers in the military, where, uh, there it goes again, but particularly lawyers in the military, uh, to lead from the rear. You know, it, it, whether you're trying to get your client, who, uh, some junior enlisted person, to understand that it's not in his or her best interest to take the stand and testify in their behalf, or whether you're trying to convince the four-star <laughs> You're doing this to me intentionally, aren't you? <clears throat> Whether you're trying to convince the four-star what it is he ought to be doing. It, it's, an, it's necessary for lawyers to lead from the rear. And if you do that, you will find yourself not directly in the policy-making position, but very effectively in the policy-making position because the lawyers have that unique position of advising the policymakers. It's easy to... It's easy to get lost in that. It's easy to hide behind that and say, well, it's not my decision. All I did was give advice. But the, you know, the good lawyers know the law. The great lawyers know about life. 
because law is practiced not in a vacuum, but practiced in real life. And I think the military lawyers that I've seen have demonstrated that uh, in great abundance, and I'm awfully proud of them. Thank you. I hope this is working because I have a very soft voice. No, it's not. You can't hear you back. All right, let me try to come down. These work? I just started work then as the uh, counselor on international law for the State Department. Williamson hadn't yet uh, come on board. And I tried to get uh, L, as it's known, to send lawyers to Paris. And uh, the uh, acting uh, legal advisor said, why? I mean, what would they do? His view, I think, was rather like the view of my colleagues up here. Uh, there's law, and then there's policy. That struck me as really wrong then, and it does now. It, it leads to all sorts of practical impossibilities uh, because it's so hard to extricate law from policy. It, in fact, makes lawyers much more dictatorial because when they try and reflect their policy preferences, they're forced to clothe that in the language of the compelling nature of law. It represents a very retrograde view of how we use lawyers in this society. So although I agree with the premises of my colleagues here, I think this is a war. I think we do have to reform international law as well as domestic law to appreciate the new kind of strategic context we're entering. I strongly disagree that the way to do that is to pretend that lawyers and lawyers should be confined to reading statutes and uh, declaring uh, obstacles or their, or their removal. For the 20th century, for the long wars of the 20th century, we separated uh, law from strategy. That was a good thing for us. It allowed us to avoid militarizing the domestic environment and politicizing the strategic environment. And that, in turn, allowed this bipartisan uh, coalition that over many decades won that long war, the wars against fascism and communism. But in the period we're entering now, we need to reintegrate law and strategy. And the failure to do that, which we have seen in abundance in the last few years, in Iraq, in the wars on terror, 
The failure to do that is getting us a reputation for fecklessness and lawlessness that will make the sort of uh, consensus that Phil Zelko talked about very, very difficult to achieve, not only abroad, but also, also domestically. There are, I think, three wars on terror that we are trying to simultaneously prosecute. One is a war against terrorism, a particular kind of terrorism, 21st century networked global outsourcing terrorism. And it will not be confined to radical Muslims, though the sort of market innovator was al-Qaeda. A second war against terror is a struggle against the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction for compellence rather than deterrence. Sometimes these two theaters intersect, and that makes terrorism especially terrifying. But sometimes they don't, and progress in one dimension makes the other dimension actually worse off. And the third is an effort to protect our, our civilians from the consequences of infrastructure failure, whether it's natural or non-natural, whether it is a, a critical infrastructure failure or a biological weapon or a biological attack uh, whose origins we do not know and we may never know, as indeed we do not yet know the authors of the anthrax attacks. To win those wars, the first weapon we must deploy is law. And the way to deploy that is not to treat the lawyers like, like closet cases. When we have learned that law is our, is our strongest suit in this society, that there's a reason why lawyers play such a large role in our founding, in our framing, in, in Congress, among elected officials today, when we've learned that, we will avoid these two extremes of either pretending that a lawless approach to strategy can succeed, or or lawyering in a way that law becomes a kind of a Trojan horse for the policy preferences of the lawyers. I was sitting here uh, listening, thinking about the, about the Mayflower, and thinking about the East Room, and I thought of uh, a deceased friend of mine. Now, I wish he were here. Uh, his name was Lloyd Cutler. He was a very prominent Washington lawyer. He wasn't a conservative. I doubt he was a member of the Federalist Society. <laughs> but he had a very subtle and powerful view of law. Most people don't realize this, but he was the, the mind behind the Algiers Declaration that got our hostages back. He was the guy who wrote the president's power into the CIA charter reform that allowed the president much more flexibility than he otherwise would have had. He never treated uh, being a lawyer as something that made him into a mechanic or something that forced him to defer to policy persons. When that happened, he would have lost his usefulness. It, it, it was, as, uh, as the dean told us, that because Lloyd was a very great man as well as a great lawyer, that he was so useful to many presidents, presidents, by the way, of both parties, uh, over such a long period of time. I imagine that many of you are lawyers, and some of you are law students. And I, I want you to reflect on the unique role that America has given lawyers. If you're a physicist or a mathematician and you cross a border, you still have your, your yellow pad with you and your chalkboard. But when a lawyer crosses a border, she becomes just another tourist. It's the jurisdiction that empowers you. And in this country, Lawyers have been given a unique 
role. Part of that puts a great responsibility on you, too. You become the defenders of the Constitution just as much as the 101st Airborne. And I think to withdraw from this or to fail to appreciate the important role law and lawyers will play in the wars on terror would be a great mistake. Thank you. I'm going to pull this panel back and uh, let the panelists uh, respond to questions from their seats and try to get a position where they can see each other. Um, I'm going to start out with just a, well, first I guess I'm going to offer the panelists an opportunity does anyone want to respond to what any of your colleagues have said. Hearing no, no jump to that. Let me, uh, let me uh, raise two questions. Um, uh, my opening comments, one of is that um, um, when, uh, well, let me, uh, let me ask another question first. Um, in the criticism of the OLC's opinion writing, uh, some people have said that these questions that were presented to OLC just should not have been answered. Um, a somewhat related question is, um, what should the government lawyer do after losing an interagency discussion uh, on a legal issue, and is what he, should, he or she should do in a different if it was a policy issue? John? Well, I think the first question, uh, I, c I guess I have some views on that. Um, it, seems, uh, it seems to me as a government lawyer, uh, you can always say I don't want to answer a question, but then you should resign your office. I think you're there to provide legal advice, and those questions can be hard. Um, you know, I think uh, before September 11th, no one thought these kind of questions would come to us at OLC, and I don't think anyone uh, joined the government because they'd be very excited to make these kinds of decisions. But I think they're I think they're difficult kinds of decisions. Take the um, question of interrogation methods. Uh, I think that's a genuinely a difficult question. I think people who say, "Oh, you shouldn't answer that question," or the answer is an obvious one, are misleading themselves. You know, you have uh, a huge demand for information to stop potentially imminent attacks on the country. The United States has captured. Uh, number three person in Al-Qaeda found in Abu Zubaydah, which I think was a, quite a victory for our intelligence agencies. And I think people say, well, we should just, we shouldn't even address any issues about course of interrogation. We should just limit ourselves to oral questioning, which would be the standard method. I think that's just a cop-out. I don't think you can, as a lawyer, just say, I, I refuse to answer that question. You have a variety of legal sources you know, to take up and to examine. Uh, and I do think that they're important policy considerations. And I I, I don't say one thing just about in response to uh, Phil number two's point, which is I don't think lawyers are, are disabled for making their views known about the policy issues and legal policy issues, but they just make clear that that's what they are, rather than I quite agree saying, well, because I think perhaps you should do no more than question this Abu Zubaydah fellow orally, I'm going to uh, interpret uh, the law in a certain way. I think, you know, you say, look, this is what the law, uh, as, we, as best we can read it, says. Uh, it's not an easy question, and then here are some other considerations uh, that you might want to take into account, but those are not part of a legal opinion about what that statute means. I just want to just, just respond yeah. to John's point, Be because I must not have... Uh, Can't hear you. I think that's working. 
because it's a tricky point, and, and, and I, uh, I, I want to make sure that whether you agree with it or not, at least I got it across. I believe that when you make this separation between law and policy, you, you end up with just what John is deploring. If you tell the lawyer, I don't want to hear your policy views. I'm a policy guy. Just tell me about the law. When you do that, invariably, the lawyer then sneaks his policy views into the law and says, well, I have no policy views on this, of course. I'm just the mechanic. But the law requires that you do this. That's, that's not what you want from a lawyer. What you want from a lawyer is the, the whole range of opinion, everything the lawyer can, can bring to the problem. And, and, and while I agree that there's a, a continual problem, particularly in the intelligence area, but also in other areas, where the lawyer is using the law as a, as a cloak for their preferences, the point I want to make to you is the idea of separation leads directly to that outcome. This is, uh, I agree with John's point that um, just a matter of the lawyer should come out of the closet and, and be overt. Um, says we're being policymakers and we're now going to employ policy rationale. I'm going to mix law and strategy. What happens is, is that the lawyers are still acting in the legal framework and they're not openly using the whole repertory of policy analysis when they're making their policy decisions. They're not acting overtly. So, for instance, like uh, some of the famous uh, Washington lawyers who've become overt policymakers, Clark Clifford, uh, Abe Fortas for Johnston, uh, for Johnson, uh, Lloyd Cutler, actually, who I've worked with, um, would often uh, be very clear. It says, I'm, I'm a policy advisor who's uh, giving you policy advice very much informed by my legal training. And, and that legal training is just one more tool I have in my arsenal. Like you, General, have your military experience. I have my legal experience as a tool I have in my policy analysis arsenal. But then you're open about that. All right, now, if the lawyers then want to be trained to work as policymakers, well, then that has powerful implications for the way we train lawyers, which I'm for that, since it turns out that a lot of lawyers, uh, since uh, law is a fertile source for finding policymakers, uh, then that has implications for the law school's curriculum and for the way the law for the way the academy trains people to practice law if they want to practice in the public area. But what you don't want is a situation where the lawyers end up making the policy decisions and then you say, why didn't you consider all of these different policy issues? And the answer is, well, because we were the lawyers. I, I think that in the 10% in the of the time when it makes any difference whatsoever, it's a false dichotomy. You know, 90% of the time, the, the, executive, the executive, the decision maker is going to come to the lawyer and say, do I have to stop on red or is that green that I stop on? You know, the answer is clear. The law is clear. It's only the, I'm making the numbers up, but it's that 10% of the time when the law isn't clear that it makes any difference. And at that point, it's very difficult to distinguish. You know, do the Geneva Conventions apply in this conflict. However you come out on that answer, it turns out to be a policy decision if it's accepted by the decision makers. And you know when you've arrived as a lawyer when the policy makers come to you and ask you your advice just because you're wise, not because you're a lawyer, but just because you're a wise counselor. They, they want to know how they should come out on 
uh, a legal or a policy question. And that's where your training in life becomes much more important than your training in law school. Let's go to the floor for some questions. Yes, um, I've been coming to these conventions for 20 years. I was at the first convention, and I think I've been to 15 and 20. And I just heard an astonishing statement by Professor Yu in which he actually said that lawyers did not act as policymakers during the Civil War. And Professor Zelikow, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Professor Harold Hyman of Rice, with Professor uh, Mark Neely, who I believe also is at Rice, and some of the other scholars who've studied the incredible number of influential legal opinions that were written by War Department attorneys for the Lincoln administration, including Secretary of War Stanton, who had been Attorney General after Jeremiah Black and the Buchanan administration, including Judge Advocate General Joseph Holt, and including War Department Counselor William Whiting. They had to address an incredible number of legal issues that dwarf the issues you're confronting, Professor Yu. They were dealing with how do you keep from recognizing the Confederacy for good legal reasons, yet enforce a blockade? What do you do about these slaves who have broken free? How are they to be treated? Questions about belligerency. And I believe Professor Lieber, Francis Lieber, the greatest civil war, uh, lawyer who was not on the Supreme Court other than Joseph Story, wrote General Order Number 100, which was a, a great discussion of belligerent rights, and it served as the basis of the Geneva Convention. We've got a rich tradition that's being completely ignored by our lawyers who, as you, Professor, you, you seem to think the world began at U.S. versus Curtis Wright and that there's no historical precedents <laughs> that have confronted the United States. President Lincoln had a lot more to confront. He had people speaking the same language, walking around, okay. burning bridges. I think that's important. Let me be clear. When I said that, I was talking about the, uh, the involvement of lawyers in operational affairs, right, in the targeting of uh, you know, use of force against specific targets and so on, accompanying commanders in the field. I don't think that happened in the Civil War. I wasn't trying to say that lawyers didn't help make legal decisions at the broader policy level as they do today. They have always done in our history, from the decision about the Neutrality Proclamation on. Uh, I, I think one reason I, I would claim no lack of, I, I would claim some minimal knowledge and not the full ignorance that you attribute to me is that, uh, <laughs> you know, when, uh, you, know, Winth you know, William Winthrop was actually the uh, counselor to the War Department who wrote this book called Const War Powers of the Government in the Civil War, and I actually wrote the editor's introduction when it came out, so I actually read the whole thing several years ago. I was actually aware of it, but it doesn't have a lot to say about lawyers actually walking on the battlefield, which they do do today. They come... They I mean, they accompany units in the field in a way they did never did in these previous wars. I, I, I don't think that, the, by the way, the American history started at U.S. versus Curtis Wright, although it is a, uh, a very wise decision. But I would say that Curtis Wright actually promoted values that are built in the Constitution that started out in 1789 and that presidents like Washington and so on have uh, taken advantage of in wartime ever since. Trip, uh, yet another DC attorney. Um, my question, I hope, is within the scope of this panel. I guess it's more of a practical matter, and perhaps I'm directing it to Professor Yu and Dr. Zelico. Um, in the instances where uh, the policy decision or the policy position is uh, not going to be the legal one, um, how do you do the PR? 
in the spheres that I'm around, a lot of international law lawyers and a lot of international lawyers, it almost seems like the lawyers getting on the battlefield, as you put it, is kind of the PR to be able to do the policy. So if you allow it to Trump, how do you do the PR and how do you get people on board with you? I don't really understand the question. I don't know. Um, I guess I'm, I'm thinking, I do see that, that we have over-lawyered international affairs and um, I guess maybe looking at it from the way that the media is uh, you know, portraying how we're going to do things and you know, all these people are against us for this, that, and the other. Um, if that, I, I believe the over-lawyering has come because we're trying to do PR. We're trying to say, well, you know, the lawyers say this is okay, so we're going to do this now. If we just take a firm stand and the lawyers haven't said that's okay or whatever, are we going to, maybe I'm not making the question any clearer, but how, how are we going to say, how are we going to get people on board, like you were saying, Dr. Zelko, if the lawyers aren't there to say, this is what the law says, so it's okay? Well, one aspect of the public defense of your policy is do people um, in societies that are governed by rules of law uh, want to think that your policies are legal? Um, now that's, uh, and that's a very important dimension of the presentation of your policy. On the other hand, it's, it's not kind of where it begins. It's just, well, I don't like your detainee policy. Well, it's legal. I, see, that's, uh, that's not a very good answer. So although I, I feel good about having John Yu as the shield of the republic, I'm not sure that he should be thrust into that role. Um, <laughs> Because, uh, frankly, the main, the main role that ought to be played in defending the detainee policies is the role of counterterrorism policy officials who explain why this is the right choice to make a well-judged balance. And I think you can see that actually the argument has devolved significantly into an argument among lawyers on both sides, in which the administration puts out its lawyers to say, our policy is legal, ergo it is the right policy. And then lawyers who argue on the other side, your policy is not legal, ergo it is the wrong policy. And I'm just trying to say this feels backwards to me. And therefore, we never really aired out very well in the first years um, the, the prudential aspects of how we ought to proceed here and how we ought to strike the balance and openly use moral reasoning instead of legal reasoning as a surrogate for moral reasoning. Thank you. Uh, Ernesto J. Sanchez, uh, this question somewhat picks up on uh, an issue that Rachel uh, noted, um, and I'd be curious to hear Dr. Zellico's uh, opinion on this. Um, a theme of this convention two years ago was the increasing degree to which the U.S. Supreme Court relies on foreign law and international conventions, some of which the U.S. has not ratified. Uh, as advisory precedent in handing down decisions with purely domestic legal issues uh, that may nonetheless have uh, international repercussions. And you add this to what many in this room might call increasing judicial activism by foreign courts, especially in the EU, uh, in terms of such ideas as uh, universal jurisdiction. Uh, and I was wondering what thoughts you might have about uh, the tensions between policymaking and uh, this increasingly strong body of uh, international law, uh, maybe to the effect of uh, what Dean Hudson was talking about in terms of law conflicting with war fighting needs that may arise. Uh, 
How do you see these phenomena uh, affecting foreign or military policy in the near term in general in what uh, seems to be direction that uh, many, uh, many foreign interests might be uh, favorably disposed towards, but uh, which may actually affect U.S. interests negatively. Okay. Uh, this is actually a really good illustration of both the problem and a way through the problem. Uh, there is a, a long-standing argument in which I do not wish to take a strong stand about the extent to which you can cite foreign legal authorities in interpreting American legal issues. Um, and frankly, on the legal issue per se, that should be decided on fairly uh, tightly reasoned legal grounds. For example, if prevailing interpretation of the Eighth Amendment requires some recourse to the views of civilized nations in the judgment of the Supreme Court, and therefore if justices of the Supreme Court, having made that ruling, think they need to look at foreign precedents, in order to apply the criteria they devised. All right, then that's a, a legal issue because of the way you've defined your Eighth Amendment norm. All right. Now, separate issue is the way I define inhuman treatment in the conduct of the war on terror. Is it important that that somehow feel consistent to the way my partners define inhuman treatment? Now, that is not dispositive of the legal issue of whether or not I have violated one or another American law. That's a policy question in that if I want them to work with me in the conduct of these common policies, how much do I care about whether or not they think what I'm doing comports with their norms? And so uh, I would make an argument that it is important to the extent you want to fight the war on terror on a coalition, that the coalition more or less feel like they're accepting some common norms. Now, from the foreigner's side, that means that the, they expect the Americans to basically perhaps adopt a notion of human and degrading treatment that they can live with and defend in their societies. Now, there are a lot of Europeans and others whom we will never please. They will never be satisfied with our views. But it is very important to find some band of that opinion who will be willing to defend your policies and defend your views and partner up with you. And then on the other side, you can press back at them with a point that John made in, indirectly, which is, we're assuming a lot of the burden for having to conduct these policies. You need to actually adopt a responsible position of how to strike these balances as if you, too, were shouldering the same burden and facing these acute dilemmas as well. But now the argument I've just described is a policy discussion that's informed by a legal background but does not really address directly the issue of whether or not I'm obliged to cite a foreign legal opinion in resolving an issue of American law. Can I, can I throw in one little yeah. factual tidbit? Is One interesting thing about this Military Commission Act, which was passed two months ago, is that it, in it Congress prohibits the federal courts from relying on or citing any source of foreign or international law in any uh, detainee case, which is just an interesting question of separation of powers, whether... Congress can do that. Okay, we've gone to a very strict time limit. We have about 15 minutes, and we have to be in the next uh, the luncheon. So let's uh, try to keep the questions short and um, crisp. I'm Joe Levengood. Uh, I'm a reservist to JAG in the Air Force, and I just got back from six months in Baghdad. 
working with the Regime Crimes Liaison Office, so I'm very familiar with your topic. I should write a book probably after that experience. <laughs> I'll read it. <laughs> now your microphone's going to go off. <laughs> My question, well, a, a bit of perspective. My experience shows me that the operators do not speak the same language that the lawyers do. I spent many years breaking heads. We really need people. to get to a crisp question. What can we do to get the lawyers speaking the language of the operators and policy decision makers? Because that's, that's where the disconnect is now. I'll, I'll say that it's, um, it's training, training, and training that uh, it's the responsibility of the lawyers to speak the operator's language, not the other way around. Uh, the operators have too many other things on their minds, and uh, you know, the lawyers in the military, less than in the civilian community, I think, but still you know, will resort to what is the legal term would be legal gobbledygook, and uh, it just drives the operators crazy. And it makes it very difficult for uh, for the dusty boots on the ground to to operate effectively, you know the, the, the decisions, you know the ROE, the the rules of engagement have to be exercised uh, under great stress, uh, you know bullets whizzing by kind of thing, uh, with no recourse to deliberate or seek consultation, and the lawyers have to be very very careful, like any lawyer any place, to make. Their, their analysis clean, crisp, and clear so that it can be understood by you know, the average four-star as well as uh, the average uh, specialist. Uh, Roger Pilon. Um, my question is for uh, Mr. Zellico. I wonder if you would respond to John Yu's point that uh, over-lawyering can take the form of purporting to, they're, they're purporting to be more law than in fact there is. I'll give a couple quick examples, the War Powers Resolution, um, the uh, FISA statute, uh, both of which raise justiciability issues. The latter case, uh, if you take a strict statutory view, of course you'll think it's law. If you are concerned about its intruding on the inherent power of the executive, you may think otherwise. And many a lawyer is inclined to uh, advise the client that there is good law here when there may not be? Well, um, I think it actually is very important to uh, um, treat legal arguments with precision and restraint. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, the famous issue of the wall that arose in intelligence sharing in the 1990s. If you study the 9-11 Commission report discusses this issue, and there are also some detailed footnotes on this. The way I would summarize it very succinctly is this. You actually had a fairly narrow and somewhat tortured set of legal requirements. In comparison to the narrow and tortured legal requirements, a whole set of cultural beliefs had grown up around them that was, in fact, much, much larger, so that people were inhibited and chilled by the penumbra and the bureaucratic culture that had grown up surrounding the requirements so that people actually were not sharing in situations where they were legally entitled to share, but thought that they weren't sharing because of a legal bar, which is another uh, reason why it's, it's very important to be clear about what it is that the law precisely requires as opposed to what it is you're going to choose to allow as a policy matter. And this is one of the real dangers. 
when we uh, use le- when we overuse legal rules is the legal rules acquire uh, cultures and institutional frameworks of their own that often acquire momentum of their own that can be quite damaging, as was the case in the example I mentioned. Henry Jernigan from Charleston, West Virginia. I, by way of prologue, and I'll be very brief, my son is a, a JAG officer. My father was a <coughs> bomber pilot in uh, World War II over Japan. They, enter, they engage in some fairly interesting discussions about the role of JAG officers in terms of advising combat pilots, particularly from AWACS. Where does the role of the lawyer end and the, and the role of the combat pilot take over in terms of the judgment. Uh, My father has one very simple view. He'd have shot the lawyers down. (laughs) 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 But it seems to me we're placing lawyers in an untenable position. I I think... uh, I I think you're right to some extent. My career in the the Navy... uh, uh, went through a very interesting time, starting from from you know, 1973 to about uh, uh, 2000. During that course of time, uh, we went from in the Navy having one lawyer on each of of the uh, uh, carriers, and that was basically it. Uh, since then. Uh, and, and and you're absolutely right. The line resist the, the operators resisted more lawyers, but then there was a tipping point that came, and they wanted lawyers. And it goes to some extent to my point about sort of hiding behind lawyers. And it it and John was absolutely right. It has, in many respects, from what I think I understood him to say, it it has in some respects inhibited, which may not be a bad thing, but it has inhibited the war fighting because you know during the the first Iraq war in Bosnia, the, the lawyers were sitting in the Pentagon making targeting decisions. They were sitting in the AWACS. They, well, that's right. And, and so it, you end up with a situation, if you've got the lawyer, if you're the line officer, you're the, you're the guy that's responsible for pulling the trigger, you've got a lawyer there who can tell you whether it's legal or not, putting aside the question of whether it's good policy, but whether it's, whether it's legal or not, do you dare not ask them? Or do you think, geez, I got to ask them in order to protect my hind side, and so that the lawyers get very much involved in it, uh, much to the uh, uh, consternation of people like your dad? You just make a point about the, this question. Also, is that even the even if the lawyer plays this role, a lot of the it seems to me the legal standards that they're interpreting and saying this is a legal target or not inherently fraught with policies. So, goes to Professor Bobbitt's point. If you just look at the standards, you know, the uh, harm to civilians has to be in some way, uh, you know, discriminatory. There has to be an attempt to not harm civilians, but you can. Um, you have to, the target has to be militarily ne- necessary. You know, the use of force has to be proportional to the target. I mean, these, are, these seem to me inherently policy decisions. And for, so there, there's this culture, I think, in the military. We're starting to train our commanders to say, turn to the lawyer and they'll give you answers on these kind of criteria where if we were doing these in law school, in first-year torts, you know, we spend the whole year saying, you know, the use idea of proportionality is such an obviously um, unstandardless area where you're really putting in policy issues into how you determine those kinds of questions. But I'm afraid sometimes in the military culture we're sort of creating this belief that there are clear and obvious right answers to what is proportional, what's militarily necessary. 
follow-on issue of the extent to which customary international law can ever be regarded as binding by, uh, by the United States, and there's actually a spectrum of views on this question. Um, my point on that is that actually if you, uh, if you go straight to it and proact if you go straight to it and proactively say we are choosing to do this as a matter of policy, not because we are bound, in some way you will be less likely to be forced into the position of ultimately being bound. Uh, this is based on uh, one's judgment of where this uh, uh, where this is going to end up. I mean, a very wise Washington lawyer once told me that one of the things he tried to do for his client is figure out where this is going to go and then get there first and structure it so that his client would do better, rather than wait to be pushed there uh, on his back, you know, off balance all the way. And so this is a way of kind of getting out in front of that and then establishing that that's a policy choice, but we're not bound. But we just, for instance, we provide Guantanamo prisoners with a wide range of treatments that are very similar to what they would get if they had POW status. Uh, but we do not accord them POW status and should not accord them POW status. We made that decision uh, very early on, I think rightly, and that I think um, has, I, I don't think that that now stands for the principle that they are formally entitled to full Geneva Convention protections. Uh, because we've made that decision. People regard that as uh, diffusing some issues that otherwise would be more difficult for us. Well, uh, I think this sharply shows the, the division uh, uh, of my views from the rest of the, of the group. Uh, I just think it's a terrible mistake to treat the kind of war we are about to enter now as if it were the sort of war that you're referring to earlier in World War II and more conventional war. When you throw away law, when you say, I don't want to take a stand on law because it may bind me in the future, right? an obvious risk, I think you're throwing away what is your strongest weapon. And, and when you cast it away, you lose two constituencies. Overseas, your behavior will be called lawless. And that will play into the hands of people who don't want to cooperate with you in the first place. At home, people will think that what the administration is doing is not lawful. The cooperation of our people is the, is the main asset we have in fighting terrorism. So I just strongly disagree with, with uh, my colleagues whom I greatly respect and whom I'm most fond of. Uh, I, I just think this is a, is a new kind of war. And the war aim is at least as much about creating law that's favorable to us and then obeying it and being seen to obey it. Uh, let me just make one comment that the people that you are concerned about, I think, is citing this are very conveniently forget the second leg of the requirement for customary international law, and that's opinio juris. And I think we're by making a policy decision to make it very clear that we're not doing it because we feel that we're obligated to do so. I also want to make a comment that uh, you can see how the State Department, uh, Congressman Philip Lovett and uh, Secretary Baker, who's on the question to me, and I want to do my interviews, are we going to be happy just being law and not being foreign policy? And I'll say yes, sir. Last question. Uh, Sam Williamson, um, Deputy Chief of the Criminal, Criminal Division in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Nashville, and also um, Deputy Staff Judge Advocate in reserve capacity for the 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force. And I see both those jobs, lawyers acting the way I would describe as modestly all the time, saying, here's what the law is, sir. You can do what you want to do or not. Um, and at, all, at my level, with FBI agents or DEA agents or generals, um, 
I see lawyers being comfortable stepping back in that role all the time. And I guess my question for Mr. Bobbitt is, why can't we expect the same behavior, same modest behavior from lawyers in the high-level jobs in Washington to also recognize uh, the manner in which they should put their own views forward on whether something is a, is a good policy idea as differing from their views on whether the law permits that to take place? Well, it's just been my experience that the lawyer who does that in the White House or the NSC or the State Department is not serving his client. He, he's, he's not he's only helping his client to the full extent of his abilities. And, and I've seen this uh, just, just countless times. And I'll just give you an example. President Carter came into office with a very capable, very modest, very able lawyer who'd been a long time. And, and that lawyer eventually left and the fellow we were talking about, Cutler, came in and became his counsel. Why? The first guy was doing just as you suggested. He was modest, he was able, he had the president's confidence. That isn't what the president needed. The president needed someone who could, who was more sensitive to the whole range of, of political, legal, moral, uh, and bureaucratic issues that a life in Washington had helped him to, had helped him to become sensitive to. And, uh, whether I'm right or wrong about what a, what a JAG lawyer should do, or, or what an FBI uh, attorney should do in the field, any issues that we've been debating here, issues that determine our credibility overseas, and that and as someone put out on the news every night, I, I, I do feel that what we think of as, as modesty, in fact, is not a good service to client. Okay, we have. Um Reach the magic uh, time limit. And thank you all for for, for joining us.